0: And invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, because wonder of wonders, we yet again get to hear our God speak to us through his word. hope that never ceases to amaze you. So often we feel as Christians, don't we? I, I just wish God would speak to me. He's about to speak to you. And he speaks to you every time you open his word. And so that's what we are going to do this morning. We are going to hear God's word from Hebrews chapter 11. And we are going to focus this week and again next week on verses 8 through 22. There is just too much there for me to put it all in one sermon. So I'm going to put it into two. And there will still be way more that I will not be able to say about these wonderful verses. But before we hear God's word from Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22, let us once again call upon our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask, even as Paul prayed in Ephesians. One, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. So help us to believe as we hear your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22. By faith. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God, and we give him thanks for such a gift. Well, maybe you have seen them before enter into a store, or maybe if you've driven through certain parts of Ohio or Pennsylvania, you've seen them on the road. Maybe you've even visited their communities or shopped at their markets. And if you have, then I would hazard a guess that your attention was immediately drawn to them, and maybe one of your first thoughts was, this is strange. I'm referring, perhaps unsurprisingly, to the Amish especially the older Mennonite version of Amish thinking and living. For if you've ever seen the Amish, you know they dress very plainly. They live quite simply. Some still ride in a horse and buggy. They use modern technologies sparingly, if at all. The look and manner of their lives is so strikingly different from the rest of the world that I have to imagine that every time they venture outside of their communities, they feel like strangers. And certainly they look strange to the rest of the world. And I would guess that if you were bold enough and actually approached one of them, you would probably want to ask, Why do you live the way that you live? Because their manner of life makes it abundantly clear that they do not believe the same things that you believe. They do not think about the world the same way you think about the world. My question to you this morning is, Do you think that non-Christians ever see the way that you live and think, this is strange? Do you think as as they get to know you, they ever want to ask you, why do you live the way that you live? I was struck the other day as I was thinking again about that well-known Verse in 1 Peter 3, which says, Christians should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And what struck me this time as I was thinking about this verse again is that Peter expects that non Christians are going to ask you why you hope for what you hope for. Which means Peter assumes that your internal hope, something people can't see, will actually somehow be visibly evident in a way that they can see. Peter expects the Christian life to look so different from worldly life that non-Christians will see Christians and think, This is strange. The Christian's internal hope is expected to be externally visible. Now, my point is not that you all should become Amish. I don't actually think that's a good idea. My point is that living by faith in God ought to make Christians feel like strangers and look strange in the world. In other words, if you are a Christian, you should never totally feel at ease, comfortable, and at home in the world as it is now. And when the world looks at your life or at your worship, it should never look normal and feel comfortable. If non-Christians walk into your home and see the way that you live from day to day and think, this looks exactly like my home looks, or or a non-Christian walks into our worship services on Sunday morning and evening and thinks, feels like every other social or entertainment gathering that I've gone to, if that's what they're thinking, something is radically wrong. It should look and feel strange. It should make them feel uncomfortable. Now, this doesn't mean we should be weird for the sake of being weird. Weird can be wrong. I went to a get together with some guys a a little while ago, and I went because they had my favorite kind of buffet, it was a pizza buffet. The instructions were just bring different kinds of pizza. It can be pizza rolls, can be frozen pizzas, can be little Caesars hot and ready. Like this is how every buffet should be. Just different kinds of pizza. So I said, I will be there. But there's there's one person in every group who just has to shake the boat. And I'm not gonna tell you who the person was, but it was Joe Horges. And he brought a Hawaiian pizza. I didn't give him grief then, but I'm going to give him grief now. That's not pizza. That's weird and it's wrong. Don't be weird for the sake of being weird. There is no inherent virtue in just being abnormal offensiveness is not, in and of itself, fruit of the Spirit. Neither am I saying that churches should just adopt a couldn't-care-less-about-outsider's viewpoint. After all, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he is well thought of by outsiders. Paul tells the Corinthians, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In other words, churches should seek to remove unnecessary obstacles to people hearing the gospel. We don't want to just be distracting for the sake of being distracting. But that is different than seeking to be credible and acceptable to the world. If that's your goal, you need to give up on that goal now. You cannot follow Christ and be credible and acceptable to the rest of the world. For Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, inherently. So the gospel is going to be offensive. And Jesus' followers will therefore at times be a fragrance of death to some. Christianity is a heavenly way of life on earth so Christians should feel like strangers and look strange in the world that's what i want you to grasp as we continue working through hebrews 11 this morning learning what it looks like for faith to to be in Action in practice because Hebrews 11, as I've been explaining over the past couple of weeks, is all about the practice of living faith. And so far, we have learned that faith in God is forward looking and therefore forward living, it is holding a hoped for and, and seen and as of yet unrealized reality. So faith is looking forward to a reality that is very real, but which has not yet been realized on earth. That's what I mean when I say it is forward-looking. But as we talked about last week, faith doesn't stand still as it looks forward and and waits for this reality to come. Forward-looking faith is forward-living, moving faith. In other words, you don't receive the future promise by waiting for the promise to walk to you. You receive the promise as you walk forward into the promise. So faith in God is forward-looking and forward-living, which continues to be illustrated in our verses this morning with the example of Abraham, Sarah, and their offspring— I'll emphasize this more next week, but these verses constitute one section within chapter 11, which is why I'm keeping them together. This section is about Abraham and Sarah and their offspring. So you might even give these verses the heading, The Faith of Abraham and His Family. That's what we're going to touch on next week. Faith is a family matter. But like Abel, Enoch and Noah, this was a forward-looking and living family. And the author highlights three episodes of Abraham's life to make this point. First, when God commands Abraham to leave his home and homeland and go to a place Abraham didn't know about yet. Number 2, when God commands Abraham and Sarah to conceive and bear a son, and number 3, When God commands Abraham and Sarah to offer that son as a sacrifice. And in each of these episodes, you see the forward-looking and living dynamic of faith. Abraham and Sarah went to live in a land of promise, not knowing where they were going. Verses 8 and 9. But they did this, we're told, looking forward to the city that has foundations. Verse 10. We're told they didn't receive the fullness of the promise, but they saw and greeted it from afar, verse 13. We're told they were seeking a homeland, verse 14. They desired a better country, verse 16. This is all a future orientation. Abraham also obeyed God's command regarding Isaac because he looked forward to the hope of resurrection. You see in verse 19. And furthermore, Abraham's son, grandson, and great-grandson lived in this same way. As each approached death, they lived knowing the promise would outlive them and that they would only receive the promise on the other side of death. So Isaac blesses his sons, Jacob does the same, Joseph even gives instructions about his bones because he thinks this isn't the end. So by faith, they all saw beyond their lives and they believed in a promise that would be fulfilled only after their own deaths. So we've already spent significant time in the previous two sermons on this forward-looking and living dynamic of faith. So with the rest of my time this morning, I want to emphasize and explain the strange and stranger dynamic of faith. And the great example of this is Abraham and Sarah, who, in honor of the 70s sitcom that I've never seen, I've named The Odd Couple, Abraham and Sarah lived by faith in God, and this made them strangers and strange in the world. But what made them so odd? Well, number one, Abraham and Sarah were odd because they believed in obedience. Now, obedience is not a very popular concept in our day. It really hasn't been a popular concept since the fall. Or I should say, obeying a God who gets to tell you who you are and how you should live is not very popular. Because we want to determine our own lives. Sin makes us allergic to, even repulsed by the idea of authority and submission to it. But living by faith in God looks like obedience to God. We read, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And that, that Greek word for obeyed, it, it's one of eager anticipation. It's, it's almost like saying Abraham began obeying before God even finished commanding. He's just so ready to go when God told him to go. And it says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham leaves his home, his family, his job, everything he knows simply because God told him to go. That's insane to the world. Especially when God didn't tell him where he was going. He was called to go to A place, it says, which indicates God hadn't made known yet the final destination. God simply said, go. Abraham goes. And Sarah went with him. Sarah is is only specifically mentioned in verse 11. But I'm going to try and show you. We celebrate the, the faith of Abraham. We should equally celebrate the faith of Sarah. They went hand in hand. Can you imagine the conversation that night when Abraham comes home? Abraham comes home to Sarah and he says, "Honey, God's told us we need to we need to pack up and we need to move. We're going to leave our family, we're going to sell our house. We're we're going to a new place." Sarah says, "Okay. So I'm assuming you've already bought us a house where we're gonna be next, right? No, Abraham says we're actually just gonna pitch tents wherever we are. Okay, Sarah responds. But do you at least have a job lined up for where we're gonna go? No, Abraham says. Okay, but can you at least tell me where we're gonna go? Are we gonna go someplace? Nice, are we going to that land called Michigan, where the skies are always gray and the winters never end. I'm sorry, honey, Abraham says. I I honestly have no idea where we're going. We're just going to pack up the moving truck and start driving. All I can tell you for sure is that we're never coming back here. You will never see your family again. I hope you see that even though Sarah is only specifically mentioned in verse 11, her faith was the same faith as Abraham's. She goes wherever he goes. So not only then would Sarah's obedience to God have looked foolish, but her obedience to Abraham probably looked pretty foolish. Remember what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Let's talk about this more next week. But we're ultimately going to see that that Sarah's obedience to Abraham was obedience to God. But that doesn't negate the fact that Sarah still chose to submit to her husband and do what he said. Wives submitting to husbands isn't even popular in most Christian churches today, let alone in the rest of the world. However, it gets crazier. Because then Abraham and Sarah obey when God tells them to have a baby. Now, that might not sound crazy at first, telling a a married couple to have a baby. But you have to remember, when Isaac is born, Sarah is 90 years old and Abraham is 100. The author delicately puts it about Sarah. She was past the age that you would normally be able to conceive. He's less delicate with Abraham and says, this guy was as good as dead when it came to making babies. He's not very useful in this department. Yet they obey. Now you might simply say, no, no, they just believed God's promise. But Isaac was not conceived like Jesus was conceived. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit helping Sarah conceive. Abraham and Sarah had to act in obedience for Isaac to be born. Now, there are many young couples in our con- congregation. Lots of you are having babies. So it's it's not unusual if I visit your home that you're setting up a nursery, that you're stockpiling diapers. However, there are some other couples in this church, and I won't say who you are, but if I visited your home, I would find it quite strange if you were setting up a nursery and stockpiling diapers. Some of you are past the age that that is the normal thing to do. And if I saw that, I might have some questions for you, and I would probably assume that you are preparing for grandchildren to be born, and you want to make sure that they have a home, a place in your home. But if you said, no, no, pastor, we're preparing to have a baby of our own. I, I might start making some phone calls to get you some help. The point, though, for us is that obedience to God looks as strange to the world as it would look to you for a couple in their 90s to be preparing for a baby. But it gets even Stranger. For then imagine that that couple who were preparing to have this miracle child had this miracle child, and then they were preparing to sacrifice this miracle child. There was perhaps no act of obedience that looked as strange or repulsive as when Abraham was walking up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. And let me simply point out again that this was yet another time that Sarah had to submit to her husband. I'm not even going to try to imagine what that conversation was like. And yet you do not read in Genesis about Sarah tearfully running up the mountain, begging Abraham not to take her son, which I take to mean By faith, she let Abraham take her son up that mountain. We're going to come back to these episodes of faith, but I simply want you to recognize now how strange Christian obedience looks. Each of these episodes, leaving everything you know to go to an unknown place, preparing to have a baby in your 90s, giving up your only child, all of this demonstrates Christians do not live in the world by God by worldly logic, they live by God's word. Christian obedience looks strange because it makes God and his word the first and foremost authority of life. Not ourselves, not our feelings, not even our own personal well-being. Faith in God prioritizes obedience to God. Faith asks, what does God want? Before it asks, what do I want? So Abraham and Sarah were strange because they believed in obedience. Therefore, number two, they were strange because they did not believe in the primacy of material and physical security. Abraham's and Sarah's decisions makes absolutely no sense when considered from the viewpoint of worldly prudence and safety. Think about it. When would you ever advise anyone to do what Abraham and Sarah did? They had a stable life and home with their family in their native land, and yet they chose to give this up to live in the land of promise As in a foreign land living in tents, they chose to live in a land of promise, not a land of security. They chose to live in one sense unsettled while everyone else settled down. They chose to live where they would be strangers and exiles, meaning they were going to give up living in a place where they would have rights, liberties, and securities as citizens. Why? Well, one reason is because they knew that where they were going, they were not going to be home yet. You settle down when you're home. They knew, we're not home. Now that's striking because you'll notice they don't believe their home yet, even when they're in the land of promise. Do you see that? They live in a land of promise as in a foreign land. It's even clearer in verses 13 through 16 says, these all died in faith. Think there it's talking about Abraham, Sarah, probably also Isaac and Jacob who have been mentioned. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers in exiles on the earth. Now pause there, because that's referring, I think, to Genesis 23. After Sarah has died, Abraham is looking for a place to bury his wife, but he doesn't own any land. So he goes to the Hittites and he asks if he can buy a piece of land so he can bury his wife. And when he goes to the Hittites, he says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. This is his land of promise. And yet he says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. Abraham lived in Canaan with the mindset that he was not home. Hebrews goes even further to say, this is how he lived in the entire earth. Hebrews goes on, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That coincides with verse 10, says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, there there are so many implications from these verses, and I, I simply can't make them all. But one side point I just want you to see here is that Hebrews 11 blows dispensationalism out of the water this idea that there are two peoples of God. There was Israel and the church that had two separate promises. Israel had physical material promises. The church has spiritual heavenly promises. There is no way you can honestly read Hebrews and think that's how he thinks about God's people. His whole point has been there is one people of God, there's one way of life, and there is one ultimate promise. That's just a a side note. You cannot think of two totally separate people with two totally separate promises. But you also see here that the promises to Abraham he understood we're not going to be fulfilled in Canaan. For him to desire and look to a heavenly country and city means even in his limited understanding, he understood what we see now, that the promised land is ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. But these verses demonstrate that even if you want to say, therefore... That because it will be a, a redeemed, renewed heavens and earth, not that all of this is going to be annihilated, but it will be renewed and redeemed. So, if one sense you do want to say, well, this world is my home because this is what's going to be renewed and redeemed, Hebrews 11 says, fine, but you still don't live as if it's your home yet because it's not your home yet. You live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So Christians, we are still spiritual tent dwellers, not home builders. That doesn't mean Christians should be imprudent, that we're only allowed to rent houses and not buy them, that we don't save and invest money, that we don't plan for retirement or care about the safety and material well-being of our children. We should care about those things and do many of those things. What I'm saying, though, is we do not do all of that with the same mindset and the exact same way that the rest of the world does. I'm saying that when unbelievers see the way we make decisions about jobs and homes and kids and finances, they should still conclude these people live as if there is something more to this life than what we see in the world. They live as if this world isn't all there is. They live as if the faith of their children is more important than the physical safety of their children. They handle money as if a comfortable retirement is not the goal of all financial dealings. These people just give their money away even more than they save. So again, I ask, would the world look at the way you parent, the way you do your job, the way you handle finances, the way you plan your vacations, the way you spend your Sundays, the way you prioritize your time, would they look at these things and have questions? They should have questions. See, if you go to a a development and you see a lot of people building houses, you'll conclude this is where they're making their home. But if you go to a campsite and you see a lot of people setting up tents, you're going to assume they're just passing through here. They think they're only going to be here for a little time, and then they're going on somewhere else. And so, Christian, when people look at our lives and decisions, they should conclude they're just passing through. They think they're on their way somewhere else. We are. Because this world as it is now is not yet our home. Our home is heaven. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And so this world will only become our home when heaven comes to earth, as we read in Revelation 21 and 22. Therefore, even though earthly safety and provision is of importance, it is not of the utmost importance, which means we're going to make decisions the world can't understand. We're going to prioritize things the world doesn't prioritize. There's no other way to explain why why someone like the Olympic gold medalist Eric Little spent the majority of his time living in a very poor and dangerous part of China so that he could bring the gospel to the Chinese. There was war going on in China at the time. So Britain even advised all of their their citizens, and Eric was a British citizen, you guys need to get out of there. And Eric Little wouldn't go. And so he ended up dying in an internment camp in China. But he was once asked whether he regretted leaving behind all of the the glory and fame of athletics. He, He was internationally known. But he responded, it's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. That, that's just a, a strange mindset in this world. Abraham and Sarah gave up everything to go where God called them. They were even willing to give up their miracle son. And these kind of decisions made them strangers and strange in the world. But third and finally, Abraham and Sarah were strange because they believed that knowing God was more important than knowing anything else. Why would Abraham and Sarah get up and go when they didn't know where they were going? Well, I've already said one reason is that they understood they weren't at home they're they're strangers and exiles anywhere on the earth but the other reason was because they believed it was more important to know the one sending them than to know where they were being sent they didn't know where they were going but they knew the one who told them to go and that's what mattered to them Worldly wisdom says the most important questions you need to answer to make wise decisions and to to act and live well are the questions what, where, and why. Abraham and Sarah believed there was a different question that mattered more than all the others. And that question was, who? Who is the one telling me to go? Who is the one promising to be with me? That mattered more than all the others. Some of my my children are in the phase of thinking that every command is, is just a question to be deliberated out loud. Well, why should I do what you've told me to do? I think I have better reasons not to do what you've told me to do. I I tell my kids, you are allowed to ask me questions if you need clarification so that you can obey. I I may give you reasons. Sometimes I won't. This is important lessons for kids to learn. Because our Heavenly Father will give us commands. He allows for us to ask questions if we need clarification for obedience sometimes he will give us reasons. Other times he won't. He will simply tell us what we need to do, and we need to do it. But it is not as if he doesn't tell us anything, because he's told us who he is. He has promised that he will be with us, and he has promised that it will be worth it. And so I remain convinced that the most important knowledge for living well, for suffering well, for dying well, indeed the most practically helpful of all knowledge is the knowledge of God. Other kinds of practical knowledge are helpful. We, we need applications spelled out. We, we need tools for dealing with stress and anxiety. All of those things are important. But I still believe the most important thing I can do as your pastor is just keep teaching you who your God is. Because if you know that, you don't actually need to know everything else. Look again at, at Sarah in verse 11. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age Since or because she considered him faithful who had promised. She knew the character of God. And that's what she ultimately needed to know. Sarah obeyed Abraham because she trusted God. Not ultimately because she trusted Abraham. Sarah went with Abraham because she hoped in God. Not because she ultimately hoped in Abraham. And this is how it is for all Christians. Christian obedience does what God says. Yes, because God says it. And because the Christian knows the God who's saying it. We know he is not only authoritative, but he is good. He is wise, he is loving, he is gracious, and he has promised that he will use his power for our good. The only explanation for Abraham's and Sarah's obedience in all of these difficult situations is that they knew and trusted the God who was commanding them. They were willing to wander as strangers and exiles in this world because they knew God would be faithful to them and that their future, their eternal, their very real and already prepared home was waiting. They could die not having received it yet, only seeing it from afar because they knew death couldn't even be the end of God's promises. God couldn't fail to keep those promises. And this is why they were even willing to give up their only son, Isaac, who was the specific son of promise. Talked a lot about this when preaching through Hebrews 6. So I'll simply remind you that the promise depended on Isaac, not just any son, on Isaac. God said these descendants that are going to be as numerous as the stars, as innumerable as the grains of sand on the seashore, that is only possible through Isaac. So when Abraham and Sarah were willing to give up their son Isaac, there was only one possible rationale. And that was, if God is going to take Isaac's life, he must be ready to give the life back he's going to raise Isaac because he said it's Isaac. They believed in the resurrection of the dead because they believed in the faithfulness of God. They lived and died in faith, even though they hadn't received the promise in full when they died. They knew their God. They knew their God could bring new life out of People as good as dead for making babies, and they knew God could bring life even out of death. Knowing God made all the difference. Did they have questions along the way? We know they did. Did they have doubts along the way? We know they did. But they lived with these unanswered questions because they had the answer to the question that mattered most who? And the answer to that question was God. Christian, the God of Abraham and Sarah is your God. And so I ask you, do you know him? And is knowing him more important to you than knowing anything else? A life lived in the pursuit pursuit of knowing, believing, and obeying God, will make you a stranger on this earth, and it will make you strange to the world. Indeed, the world will be very embarrassed by and ashamed of you. But here is the good news for living in this way. God will not be ashamed of you. Just look briefly in closing at verse 16. Which says one of the most amazing things in the Bible. It says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is our heavenly father, and he is not ashamed of his very strange children. He knows they look strange to the rest of the world, and yet he is proud to say, I'm his dad, I'm her father. See, God doesn't need his children to get the best grades. He doesn't need them to be the best looking or the most athletic. He doesn't need them to be the most intelligent and accomplished or any other worldly metric that you can come up with. Our Heavenly Father is simply proud of his children who live and die in the hope of heaven. And how do you know he's not ashamed of you? One, because he's already prepared a city to be with you. We distance ourselves from the ones we're ashamed of and embarrassed by. I I don't want to be associated with that person. God says, I've built a city so that I can live with my wonderfully weird kids forever. So that's how you know he's not ashamed of you. But he's also, you know, not ashamed of you because he identifies with you. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought how wonderful it is that when God introduces himself to people in the Old Testament, he often introduces himself in relation to his children. When when God comes to Jacob, he introduces himself saying, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. And then when he comes to to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When I was a, a kid, and my, my dad was pretty prominent in the church that I I attended, and so I I was always known as well. This is this is Pat Quinn's son. We we should all be known by the superior one. <laughs> And yet God condescendingly introduces himself in relation to his children. God says, I'm, I'm his God. I'm his father. And this ought to comfort you. Because in this way of introduction, God is saying, you can trust me. Do you remember how I took care of Abraham? Remember how I took care of Isaac? Remember how I took care of Jacob? I'm that same God and I promise I'm going to take care of you too. It is a promise of of comfort and and trust. But it's also a promise that his a, a word that his promise cannot fail. Because remember Jesus words. He says and as for the dead being raised have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Do you understand how important that is? See, the rest of the world is going to look at Christians dying and think, See, God didn't take care of them. They didn't get all of these grand things that they talked about every Sunday that they were going to get. God failed them. You might be tempted to think that when you hear about Dr. Reeder just died in a car crash. You think God didn't protect him. He must not have loved him. And yet when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying, guys, they're not actually dead. They're alive. They're receiving what I promised to give them. And so, in the same way, we are comforted that death is not the end of the promise. I promise you, this is the best Sunday Harry Reader and Tim Keller have ever had. They're now in the heavenly sanctuary. They don't have to be down in these earthly ones anymore. There is no downside to death for the Christian, it's just better life. It's entering into. Your home, your God and Father, who is their God and Father, will never be ashamed of you, and he will never break his promises to you, which means you can be a joyful stranger in the world and look strange to the world. And perhaps some in the world will even see your strange life and ask you, why do you live the way that you live. Are you ready to give them an answer? Are you ready to say, ah, let me tell you about my faithful father and my heavenly home. Let's pray. Oh, heavenly father, we thank you that you are still the God of Abraham, the God of God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Harry Reader, the God of Tim Keller, and you have come to us and said, I am your God. You can trust me as they trusted me. You can believe the promise as they believed the promise because my promise will never fail. Would you help us to live faithfully To live joyfully, to live as strangers, and to look strange. That others might look at us and want to know about the hope that we have. Help us to be ready to give a reason, to give an answer to those questions when they come. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.